Hey y'all, you're listening to the Faith Church Sermon Podcast. We are so excited that you're connecting with us today. It is our desire for you to grow as a result of the resources we provide here. We pray that this blesses you today as you seek to know Him more. When I was in college, my college pastor preached a message once about how we do things that we know we shouldn't. And his example was, I know I shouldn't eat an entire box of Oreos, but, and as we were laughing, he says, some of you have done this. Some of you have done it with the double stuffed ones. At this point, my friend leans over to me. He's exasperated. And he says, what is this guy talking about? Double stuffed Oreos are thicker than the original. Therefore, there are fewer cookies per box. So if you eat the entire box, the net calorie count equals out. It's almost right. Double stuffed box actually has fewer calories. I checked. (laughs) Ever since I've used this story to illustrate the lengths to which we will go to defend our own lack of self-control. We don't list lack of self-control among the big sins, and yet self-control is listed among the fruit of the Spirit. And the Bible emphasizes self-control over and over again. So let's put down our defenses for the next few moments and try to engage with what God might have to say to us. Let's pray. God, we come to meet with you this morning, and we just ask that you would encounter us in these next moments. And would you take a moment and just pray for yourself, that God would meet you where you are today. And then would you take a moment and pray for me, that these would be God's words and that they would be helpful to you. God, I ask that you remove me in these moments and that you would speak directly to each and every one of us. We come to meet with you. We ask that you would encounter us in the way that when we leave here today, We know you better. We love you more than right now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we've been in this series in the book of Titus, and we're understanding how we ought to live as Christians, both as individuals and collectively as a church. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead, turn them on, open them up. We are in Titus chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. And your teaching show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Up to this point, we have seen that Paul has laundry lists of instructions for leaders and for older men and older women and younger women. Leaders must be blameless, hospitable, loving what is good, upright, holy, disciplined, Older men must be temperate, worthy of respect, sound in faith, having love and endurance. Older women must be reverent, teach what is good. Younger women must be pure, kind. And the list goes on and on. And then Paul gets to young men. And he has one, just one instruction for young men. Control yourselves. For everyone else, he's got these laundry lists of instructions. And to young men, he says, control yourselves. It's as if Paul has met young men before. He knows that this is enough of an instruction. We can't add anything else to their plates. 
But before the rest of you tune out, know this, that this very self-control Paul urges for every group that he addresses, for leaders, for older men, for older women, for younger women, and now for younger men. Because Paul understands that a lack of self-control, this pursuit of our own self-interests, is not restricted by age or gender or race or anything else, but it is a human condition. Our lack of self-control is part of our sinful human nature. My guess is I didn't have to tell you that today, that you knew that long before I said it, because you've been in that cycle of success and setback as you wrestle with your own self-control or lack thereof, an addiction that you can't break, or one that you've, you've broken and then you've fallen back into, or a bad habit that you can't kick, or one that you, you've gotten rid of and then picked up again, a character trait that You just can't restrain, like a temper you keep losing, or maybe it's a sin that you keep committing. Whatever it is in your life, you've been through that cycle. You've told yourself, this is the last time. We will never do this again, just to find yourself back there again and again. Maybe you've tried to convince yourself that this is just how you are. You get what Paul is talking about. And the American culture that we live in today does not make this any easier. We've been sold this idea that we decide our destination, that we are the drivers of our own destination, that we get to decide what we want our reality to be. If there's any doubt about that, just consider that there is an athletic clothing company urging us to just do it. A fast food restaurant that reminds us that you can have it your way. And countless potato chip companies that taunt us with, once you pop, you can't stop. And bet you can't have just one. To which our universal response has been yes and amen. So how do we become self-controlled? Here's what's beautiful about God. He will never tell us what we shouldn't do without providing direction toward what we should do. God doesn't say, control yourselves and just leave it at that. He knows that if we had the ability to control ourselves, we'd already done that by now. And so Paul, or God, gives us instructions on what we should do. The fact is that it's often the case that the more we focus on what we don't want to do, on who we don't want to become, the more we're likely to become the thing that we're running from. And so God doesn't just supply a laundry list of what not to do, but he tells us what we should do, what we should be running toward. And more than what we should do, it's also what we can do. Oftentimes, our struggle with self-control deceives us into believing that there's no hope. And yet, in the Bible, in the same passage in Galatians, where self-control is listed as a fruit of the Spirit, Paul writes this, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And that's what we see here. It's important to remember that Paul's writing to Christians. We have the Holy Spirit, and if we walk by the Spirit, the Bible promises that we can gain self-control. Paul says that we need to control ourselves, but then he tells us how to do it. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Set them an example by doing what is good. The term that Paul uses for good here really has no English equivalent. It's translated as noble, beautiful, exquisite, and yet at the same time, it transcends all of that. Paul's not talking about getting a thumbs up for doing a good job, but he's talking about pure, unadulterated goodness. 
We are to pursue that. His letter to the Colossians, this is how Paul describes it. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. That is what is meant by this term good. So how do we obtain self-control? By pursuing and doing what is good. Now this might give you pause because our whole lives we've been conditioned to think of good and evil as opposites. And even if we're not good in every moment, most of us don't consider ourselves to be evil. And so we have this odd reassurance that at least we're not like those mugshots that come across the evening news or the stories we hear on the true crime podcasts. But it's clear in the scripture that the Bible contrasts goodness with self-interest, selfishness, and a lack of self-control. Consider the first sin. The Bible doesn't say that Eve was looking to rebel against God or that Eve was looking to stir trouble. Genesis 3 tells us that Eve saw that the fruit was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom. And so she takes and eats it. The foundational core of our sin is our selfish desires, our pursuit of our interests over the clear direction of God. And that is what it means to lack self-control. Notice that Paul doesn't simply say, be self-controlled or do what is good, but he tells us where we need to do this, in everything. Those two words, in everything, are imperative in this passage. Self-control is not determined by our circumstances. It is a pattern of consistent behavior. See, it's easy to do good when it's convenient or advantageous or when it lines up with our own interests. It's hard to do good in everything. It's easy to exercise self-control when you have no interest in something. It's hard to exercise self-control in everything. For example, if you hate people, alcohol, and loud music, then staying home and reading a book when everyone else goes to party at the downtown club is not self-control. In fact, being self-controlled or doing good when it's convenient, expedient, or advantageous is really just another way of pursuing our own interests. This is precisely what Jesus teaches in Luke 6. He says, if you love those who love you, if you do good to those who do good to you, if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? If we practice self-control and doing what is good as a way of bolstering ourselves, then we've missed the entire point of the gospel. So God calls us to be self-controlled in everything, and we get there by focusing on doing what is good. But how do we know what is good? In verses verses 7 to 8, Paul writes, And your teaching show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. Now, depending on what translation you're using, you may have a different set of words here. And all the different terms makes this a little confusing. So let's try to unpack what Paul's saying. And we see that Paul's talking about two categories, what we believe and how we act. So let's begin with what we believe. Paul writes, in your teaching, show integrity. And when we hear the term integrity, we generally think of morality or virtue. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. That part's going to come later. Paul is using the term integrity to mean something that's uncompromised, sound, unimpaired, or uncorrupted. For example, consider how engineers describe uh, a building and the structural integrity of a building. 
If building materials are corrupt or they're corroded, then the, instru- the structural integrity of the building has been compromised. And if the structural integrity of a building is compromised, then that building will collapse. And Paul will take that same approach here to teaching God's word. In order for us to pursue goodness, we must know what goodness is. The Bible tells us over and over again that God is good and that God does good. So God defines goodness and to know what is good is to know God, to know his word and to follow it. This makes even more sense if we understand the audience that Paul is writing to. In Titus's time, he's leading a church that is at the cross-section of a lot of different religions and cults, and they have different practices and trends that have begun to influence the church. Remember in Titus 1 that there's also these Jewish myths that are preeminent in the church. And so while they believed in God and they were still worshiping, they had begun to merge their faith with those different beliefs and practices and trends. So in teaching the word of God, Paul emphasizes to them the purity of doctrine, that the word of God stands alone, and to enjoin it with anything else is to compromise its integrity. We find ourselves in an era today not much different from the one of Titus's time. We live in a culture today that believes truth is what you want to make of it. We have more religions and cults and worldviews and perspectives that surround us today than in Titus's time. And our culture says that the right one is the one that's right for you. And just as in Titus's time, we are starting to take that same approach to God's word. Here's the truth. The Bible is not an a la carte menu. There's abundantly clear teaching on a host of issues from marriage to salvation and beyond. And we do not get to pick and choose which ones we follow and which ones we leave behind. God's word is not for us to merge with whatever trend or cultural trend or political persuasion is to our liking. And when we do that, we replace pursuing God and what he says is good with pursuing our interests and what we believe is good not unlike what Eve did in taking the fruit in the Garden of Eden. Jesus has stern words for this. In Matthew, he condemns the religious leaders for nullifying the word of God for the sake of your tradition. And he calls them hypocrites for doing so. If we claim to follow Jesus, then we must take his word seriously. A well-known Christian pastor and author gave this wise advice regarding our a la carte tendency toward God. This is what he wrote. I'll admit that I have a tendency to read in the scripture what I want to find, and maybe you do too. Knowing this, I've spent many hours fasting and praying that God would prevent my desire from twisting scripture to gratify my personal preferences. And I encourage you to do the same. Don't believe something just because you want to, and don't embrace an idea just because you've always believed it. Believe what is biblical. Test all your assumptions against the precious words God gave us in his Bible. So Paul then turns from what we believe to how we live, because how we live reflects what we believe. The gospel is not merely a set of beliefs that get us to heaven, but is a comprehensive, all-encompassing life. And that way of life flows directly from our doctrine. So what kind of life flows from an uncorrupted, uncompromised, and pure doctrine? Paul writes, one of seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. 
This is where Paul is talking about morality and virtue. But this also goes far beyond mere morality. The term seriousness here signifies a profound gravity, a dignity, a holiness that is rooted deep within us and is exemplified in how we live. It transcends simply doing the right thing and it speaks to our foundational identity, to who we are. This goes beyond avoiding sin, and it moves toward becoming more like Jesus. When that identity is manifested, it is evident in our behavior, even down to how we speak. We often think of self-control as relating to big sins, addiction, gluttony, pornography, etc., And we keep this laundry list of things that we shouldn't do. And we think as long as we don't do these things, then we can live our own lives and we can pursue what we want to pursue. And yet you notice here that Paul says that even our speech should be beyond beyond reproach. In 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses this dispute that they're having over food that's been sacrificed to idols. And it almost seems silly that he's addressing a fight over food. But notice what Paul says. He separates the right to do something from doing what is good. And he instructs them, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So what does that look like? Paul described this as a speech that, can, a speech that cannot be condemned. That even our enemies will have nothing bad to say about, that, about us. Does your life look like that? Can our church be described like that? You notice here, Paul doesn't say that that living this way paves the path to prosperity or to easy living. No, Paul writes, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed that they have nothing bad to say about us. Paul tells us that even as we live out lives of gravity, dignity, and holiness, there will be people who oppose us. But we don't live out lives of gravity, dignity, and holiness because others treat us the same way. We live lives that way regardless of how others treat us. Because if we did it based on how others treat us, that would be selfishness. And if we live that way regardless of how others treat us, that is the epitome of self-control and doing what is good. No matter who that opposition or how intense or unfair the opposition is, we live our lives in such a way that they can find nothing bad to say about us. We do not pursue and live out in this manner just because others do the same for us, but we do so regardless of what they may think. There's no better example of this life well-lived than Daniel in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter one, we see that Daniel is among a group of exceptional young men being given favor by the king, including food and wine from the king's kitchen. Yet amid this favor, the Bible says Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. In chapter six, we see that now Daniel is facing significant adversity and opposition. But we see the same character in self-control. And here's how the Bible describes him. The administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. 
So Paul's path to self-control is to focus on doing what is good. That requires both faith, the purity of doctrine, and works, living a life that is marked by gravity and dignity and holiness in both word and in deed. And this is difficult because this is contrary to our sinful nature. And we're surrounded by a culture that preaches the exact opposite message. And Paul gets this. And so Paul doesn't simply tell Titus to teach this, but he says, in your teaching, show, demonstrate integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech. And he calls on Titus to set them an example by doing what is good. So how can we grow in self-control and goodness? How can we grow in gravity and dignity and holiness? By surrounding ourselves with people who exemplify sound doctrine, character, and speech. We know that we become like the people that surround us. And if the culture that surrounds us is counter to the Christian life, then we must be intentional in seeking and creating the community where these values are upheld and esteemed and pursued together. So to the young, find an older mentor who exemplifies self-control and doing what is good. It's important that you find peers on this journey and that you journey together, but it is equally imperative that you find somebody who is further along on this journey that will invest in you and will be your example. Somebody who already has self-control, who has the pattern of doing what's good and who lie, whose lives exemplify gravity, dignity, and holiness. Surround yourself with those people and then go and be that example yourself. As Paul's writing to Titus, Titus is also a young man and he calls on him to set the example. He gives the same charge to Timothy, another young leader, And he writes to Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in faith, and in purity. And to the non-youth, the experienced, the wise, the mature, be an example for the young. At the beginning, we said that the word Paul uses for self-control is the same word he uses for leaders, for older men, for older women, and for the young. But there's one difference. Here, when Paul is talking to the young, the word is a verb, control yourselves. But when Paul is talking to leaders and to older men and women, the word is a noun, a direct object. You have self-control. You've, through life's journey, you have gone from practicing self-control to possessing self-control. It is now a part of who you are. And that is the example and model that those of us who are young need. It is not an example that we get from the world. And so we need you. I recently had a conversation with a West Point alum. And she shared that one of the most unique things about the academy is that you're surrounded by individuals who are striving together for excellence, to striving together to be the best. Now, it may seem like you should be competitors, but as you strive together, you make them better and they make you better. And she said throughout her career in military and in corporate America, it's not something she's seen anywhere else, except that is exactly what the church should look like. It's actually something God has been challenging me with lately. For me, I've always had the passion of working with younger people. Whether it's a student I get to teach or an intern I get to mentor or a kid I get to load up with sugar and send home with their parents. 
I get joy from a conversation with a student about their last game or their college application process or when a kid comes up and shows me his new light-up sneakers or the project she's working on in Sunday school class. But this past year, God has impressed upon me the vast difference between being kind in the conversation and being intentional and investing in someone, in doing what is good, and in setting them the example. See, when I was in high school, I somehow found myself in this Sunday school class full of young leaders. They're all early career and graduate school. I had no, absolutely no reason to be there. Years later, I found out that it was actually a class designed uh, for young couples in the early years of their marriage and family. I had no idea how little business I had being there. But they took me in, so to speak, and they looked out for me as I went to college and then launched into my career, and several of them helped me parse through my relationships. And they didn't have all the answers, but they led me to run toward Jesus, and they set for me an example. Some of them are leaders in our church today, and to this day, I still look up to them. So where do we go from here? A few practical steps along this journey. Number one, know God's word. About 10 years ago, I was at a conference and a recently retired professor from a renowned university was one of the speakers. And he said that the atheist students at the start of his career knew their Bible better than the Christian students at the end of his career. How can we hold to the purity of doctrine when we don't know what that doctrine is? How can we believe in God and not know what God believes? The single greatest act of self-control was Jesus saying, not my will, but yours be done, and refusing to come down from that cross. And if we become like the people that we're around and we want to be self-controlled, then we need to be around Jesus. So open the word, read it, engage it, pray it over your life. Number two, set your goal today to do what is good. Where are you struggling with self-control? Consider what would be the good thing to do in that moment. What the Bible says is good. And then make that decision today. Don't wait for the heat of the moment. We all know in the heat of the moment, we will make the selfish decision. So make that decision today and set that goal today. And number three, find your Paul or your Titus. If you're young, find that older mentor Next to following Jesus, it was the best thing that you can do for your life. And if you're older, find that young person you can invest in, just as Paul invested in Titus. Our church has so many young adults, kids, high school and middle school students who need your investment and your example. What we do here on Sundays is not the Christian life because we are not merely called to teach this but to show, to demonstrate, to exemplify this. We've all seen the headlines and heard the stories of individuals who fall from grace, whether professionally or personally. And every time I find myself asking why, why would they do something like that? Was there no one beside them to advise them otherwise? Or did they disregard that advice? And what I've come to realize is that nobody wakes up one morning and says, how many laws can I break today? Or how can I cheat on my spouse today? Or how can I become addicted to something today? But every single one of those individuals asked one question. What do I want? 
And if that can happen to so many of those leaders, then that certainly can happen to me. So one question I've begun to ask myself regularly is if Jesus never existed, or if Jesus died and never resurrected, would my life look any different? Not on Sundays, that part's easy, but what about the rest of the week? What about Monday to Friday or Saturday night? Would my life look different at work, at home, in my relationships with people that I don't know have never met? Because if the answer is no, then I'm living out selfishness and I'm not doing what is good. In 2 Peter, the apostle Peter echoes Paul's words. He writes, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance. And he goes on and on. And then he reminds us that we can do this. And he says that God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. The world beyond these walls preaches that there is no absolute truth and that life is what you make of it. And more importantly, life is about making much of ourselves. But we know how that story ends in history and in our own lives. What our young people need, what this world needs, is not a church that lives for itself, but a church that does what is good, that sets the standard for gravity and dignity and holiness, a church that sets the example of a life well lived. Let's pray. God, we confess that we live out our own self-interest. And God, we we seek your forgiveness and we seek the spirit to guide us. God, would you mold our lives into lives of dignity, of holiness, of gravity? Would you help us cling to the purity of doctrine? And would you lead us individually and as a church to be the example that this world so desperately needs? We pray this in Christ's name, amen.